All right, everybody, welcome to Friday. Uh, Molly is on some well-earned vacation. So producer Rachel is filling in. We're going to go over all the results from Google, Amazon, and Apple. Yep, there are some hot takes from Jason and some things that jumped out, uh, especially from those big tech results. And then Molly interviews and another amazing launch accelerator founder. And of course, if it's Friday, we have an OK Boomer uh, segment. This is an interview that Rachel did with the founder of the tech conference and program Slush. It's going to be a great show. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Masterclass. Learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, and at your own pace. Get 15% off an annual membership to Masterclass at masterclass.com slash startups. Vanta. Compliance and security shouldn't be a deal breaker for startups to win new business. Vanta makes it easy for companies to get a SOC 2 report fast. Twist listeners can get $1,000 off for a limited time at vanta.com slash twist. And Fitbod. Tired of doing the same workouts at the gym? Fitbod will build you personalized workouts that help you progress with every set. Get 25% off your subscription or try out the app for free when you sign up now at fitbod.me slash twist. All right, everybody, it's Friday. Molly Wood is off. Yeah, gets a, a three-day weekend, well-earned. And with us is Rachel reporting. She's going to queue up some important news for us. God, it's earnings season, so we, we got to cover these important earnings reports. Google uh, had their uh, quarterly earnings. So did Apple. And so did Amazon. So the big three. Yeah. Uh, let's start with Google. How did Google do? So Google shares are down 3% after missing on revenue and profit in its Q4 earnings report. And the big takeaway here. So Google missed on top line and bottom line uh, as its ad business saw a substantial slowdown in Q4 and revenue from search ads and YouTube ads were down 2% and 8% year over year, respectively. All right. That's, uh, as I always say, in a down market, a recessionary market, what are the things people cut first? They're going to cut ad spend, right? So you're yep. going to just look there and cut some ad spend. They're also going to cut some cloud computing. I'm sure we'll hear about that later. People are going to look for places to cut that aren't human beings because it's emotional to cut a human. Uh, it kind of sucks to lay people off. Management doesn't like to do that. It's bad for morale. But cutting some advertising, if everybody cuts advertising 10%, uh, 20% in a down market. Sure, you're going to see it. But Google uh, has some of the best ad tools out there. Search is qualified. Uh, and it is some of the most targeted advertising in the world, along with Amazon's new ad business. Google's uh, is some of the highest performing in the world. Now YouTube, that's brand advertising, right? So you're not as much direct response, you're not getting people close to a sale, it's a little bit further away from the sale. So it makes sense that it's off 8%, only 2% for search. So actually, I think these results are not that bad. And I would expect Google to be able to come back from these. And have you ever bought anything like off of a YouTube ad before? I myself have YouTube Pro, which used to be called mm -hmm. like YouTube Red, since it came out. So I haven't seen ads on YouTube with the exception of like accidentally getting logged out, you know, if I use an old laptop or something. So I don't see any and therefore I don't click on them. And I'm also not a very directed advertising influence consumer. I'm a research based consumer. So when I do click on ads, 
it's going to be on Amazon ads. The Google ads I do click on are Google flights or Google mm. local or Google shopping. So when I do a search and I'm doing research because I'm a research every person, not like a, a, a video ad kind of person. That's kind of when I, I think click on a lot of ads and Amazon. Now you'll see the editor's choice, you know, or the Amazon choice, whatever they call it. Frequently, they also buy ads. So you'll see it in the organic results. And you'll see it as an ad. And sometimes I'll click on it, even if it's an ad. Um, and a lot of the search services on Google flights, shopping, hotels, those are all cost per click, people don't realize they're cost per click. But people are getting paid a whole Google's getting paid a whole lot of money. Do you buy stuff off of YouTube ads? Have you ever bought off a TikTok ad or a YouTube? I, ad? Well, I also have YouTube premium. And the mm -hmm. only time I can think about if I if I would have bought something, it's probably off of like a sponsored Reddit post, if I was going to mm. pick something off of like a social media, um, uh. because how Reddit has like, again, I'm also, I guess, pretty research based if I'm looking up for a product, and it comes up as sponsored in Reddit, I can see myself uh, clicking on it, but not yet from YouTube. Yeah, and it looks like uh, YouTube ad revenue 7.96 billion. So eight times four, $32 billion a year It's incredible business. Uh, but they um, fell shy of estimates. The good news is I think the shorts business, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that, Rachel. Mm, yeah, the shorts business is really interesting to me. So obviously, TikTok has been um, a big competitor of YouTube, especially when we saw it, you know, kind of pop during the pandemic. But since I believe February 1st, YouTube has started really monetizing creators with uh, their version of TikToks, which is uh, YouTube Reels. So that's an exciting thing that we're going to be seeing. Although I or YouTube, no, it's called YouTube Shorts. YouTube Instagram Shorts, yeah. Reels, yeah. Instagram is Reels, yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know. I don't really like YouTube Shorts. So I'm interested to see how this goes. I, I think they're getting a ton of uh, views for it. I, I, I saw 50 billion daily views for shorts, which makes sense because they're really pushing them hard. We do them here on This Week in Startups. We get yeah. views for them as well. Um, but it, this is going to, I think, become a real business for YouTube. Advertisers haven't particularly embraced making shorts yet. So when a new content format comes out, creators exploit it first. And then marketers slowly try to figure it out. So I don't think advertisers have figured out shorts yet. Yeah. Some on TikTok, you do see some ads on there. Um, I've been seeing some ads for movies and stuff like that. So I think we'll see the entertainment companies kind of figure out shorts first. And uh, some product companies are, are uh, also doing that. But it's going to be a big business for them. And I, I don't see any ads on YouTube shorts. I haven't seen any ads ever. Uh, but maybe that's because I have the ad free version. So mm. I guess I'll never see shorts ads. Have, do Are they selling ads here yet? So I guess they haven't turned yeah. it on yet. I am not sure if they turn them on yet because I also use premium. And honestly, right. when it's like the first thing you see when you open the app, though. And yesterday, uh, CEO Sundar Pichai said that shorts actually surpassed 50 billion daily views. So like mm. obviously, somebody's looking at them. People are liking them, obviously. At yeah. least that's because it's the first thing that you see when you open um, that YouTube app. Um, and 50 billion daily views, that's up from 30 billion daily views uh, back in April 2022. Oh, okay. So it's growing significantly. It's almost doubled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. Well, I mean, this chart, I think, so tells you everything you need to know about YouTube. YouTube has peaked essentially at this seven, eight billion dollars uh, a quarter in revenues. Google's cloud is still growing. I think 
Google Cloud is still growing. Uh, their Q4 Google Cloud revenue, that was $7.3 billion. Year over year, that's up 32%. And okay. uh, quarter over quarter, that's up 6.5%. So cloud was really one of those bright spots for Google. And Google Cloud revenue actually beat estimates and showed pretty strong signs of growth. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Google got in on the layoffs, 12,000 employees last month pretty uh, charged as we talked about on the program, people were kind of upset about it. They didn't understand who was getting laid off and why. But that's not going to hit the books until maybe Q3. Because mm. they gave such generous severance packages. So we won't see it. Uh, I guess we have the Sankey chart, uh, which gives you a pretty good overview of uh, how the revenue works over their search advertising, obviously the bulk of their revenue. Uh, they do make some from cloud and they, and they do make some from their Google Play Store, uh, getting 30% of apps, uh, AdSense, Google Ad Manager, uh, their, their ad tools also make some money. But yeah, still wildly profitable, still throwing billions of dollars, net profit, 13.6 billion. So a money printing machine and uh, flat is the new up. So if they're slightly down, if they miss the revenue, they miss a little uh, earnings while they regroup during a down market it's an advertising based business that's their revenue is advertising so it's just gonna um they're gonna have to fight it out quarter to quarter uh but i still think it's a strong company and i think chat gtp chat gtp and that whole headwind i think might yeah. be a little um overblown i don't think people are going to stop using youtube or stop using google search just because chat gpt is available i don't think it's going to take any time away it's not going to take any revenue away from Google search. The answers on ChatGPT are not reliable yet. So we'll see if ChatGPT4 puts a dent in it. But I think we're a couple of years away from ChatGPT taking away meaningful rev revenue from Google search franchise or YouTube's. I don't think that it's going to take revenue away from either of those services or users. It's going to take a while for that to happen. Yeah. And we're already seeing like Google really branch into that AI space. So it's going to be interesting to see like when their competitor like officially comes out earlier yes. this morning, even Google, Brian, you might have to pull this up there. Uh, Google invested in a really interesting uh, AI product that I saw that helped uh, really detect when people put hateful prompts in AI. Mm. So I feel oh, like in okay. the next two quarters, this mm. could be something to watch uh, in Google's other category, um, which includes like their their AI projects that really haven't been announced yet. Yeah, it's definitely, um, we're going to see a flurry of products come out from Google with their chat assistant, an API, natural language models or learning mod uh, models for developers to play with. But again, it's yeah. not going to have any impact on the YouTube franchise, the Android franchise, the cloud computing franchise, and certainly not the search franchise. It's going to take years for that to even put a dent in it. So it's uh it's fun to talk about but i don't think it's going to have a meaningful impact on their revenue they listen a lot more when you lose and so be smart about your delivery and what you're what you're saying but it can be a, an extremely important moment in uh, your relationship with your team and and the trajectory of your organization that was the voice of Mike Shashevsky. 
aka Coach K, the winningest coach in NCAA men's basketball history. And his point about leadership mattering more in hard times is so accurate. It's so true. It's easy to be a leader in that market. We all know that. But real leaders shine when things get tough. If you're a business leader, you can learn so much from Coach K's new master class. They also have Malcolm Gladwell teaching writing. And he's an amazing writer. James Cameron on filmmaking. God, Avatar 2 was mind-blowing. And so many more legends of their craft. Masterclass is the best way to learn from world-class instructors. And paying for an unlimited Masterclass subscription is a total no-brainer. We just had an awesome insight from Coach K in 20 seconds. Imagine how much you can learn in 10 minutes or even two hours, right? I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every class. And as a Twist listener, you'll get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash startups now. That's masterclass.com slash startups for 15% off masterclass. What's going on at Amazon? So Amazon stock is down around 5% after beating on revenue, but providing weak guidance for quarter one. Uh, so Amazon's ad business, as opposed to Google's, is absolutely crushing it. And if you if you listened to the last All In, um, you guys already gave kind of like a sneak peek on why that could be. Um, their Q4 advertising revenue was 11.6 billion, and that was up 19% year over year, up 21% quarter over quarter. Uh, but before, let's just get into the results, and we can explain that I guess in a minute. Their Q4 total revenue was $149.2 billion, and that was up 8.5% year over year, 17% quarter over quarter. Um, and remember with those quarter uh, over quarter results, that is like a holiday bump. So sure. just be super mindful. The holiday season happened last quarter. And with this revenue breakdown by segment, um, especially with online store revenue, you can see that holiday bump. Um, online store revenue was 64.5 billion. That was down 2% year over year, up 21% quarter over quarter. AWS revenue was 21.4 billion, up 20% year over year, up uh, 4% quarter over quarter. So that's Q4, slowing. A Amazon yes. revenue is, uh, Amazon web services revenue is slowing. It was in the high 30, it was in 30% year over year. Now it's down to 20% as startups and big corporations say, hey, let's take a look at our cloud spend, you know, like, let's have some austerity there, right? People are looking at their bills, they look at marketing, and then they look at cloud, and they just try to cut them. So we, we see a slowing Amazon uh, web services. Exactly. So they're like tightening their belt there, uh, where their subscription revenue, and that includes things like Prime, um, audiobooks, music, that was $9.2 billion. Uh, for their revenue, which was up 13% year over year and up 3% quarter over quarter. And then finally, this is the really interesting part, the mm. ad revenue, which I'd love to hear you talk more about. Um, $11.6 billion, up 19% year over year, up 21% quarter over quarter. So Amazon's ad business is just absolutely destroying it. They're doing crazy well. Yeah. So this is um, really interesting. The advertising businesses at Uber and the advertising businesses at Amazon, these are new entrants into advertising. And when you look at them, what do they have in common? Well, you're very close to the transaction. And so when you do a search for, I don't know, some product, you need a ski helmet. Uh, if I go do a search for a ski helmet, you're, you can be sure that people who make ski helmets are going to want to intercept me uh, at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm really considering buying that. Now, what are the two places where I'm definitely considering buying it. One is Amazon and one is Google search, right? And if I do uh, a search result, the first one, the first three results are 
Well, actually, it's the first four results right now. I'm looking at Amazon. I wow. did. I yeah, actually, it's five. So it's the f- the first row has Findway, some ski helmet uh, provider, and then the first results, first four, are sponsored, and the first organic one is in fact the fifth. Interestingly, one of the advertisers is the Amazon Choice. So they're the Amazon Choice. Uh, this outdoor ski ma- master uh, has an Amazon Choice logo on it in the sponsored one. So in order to become uh, to get a lot of reviews, that ranks you higher. So now you're forced, just like on Google search. If you don't buy Google Ads, you're not going to get good SEO. So you have search engine marketing SEM leads to SEO search engine optimization. That's what's happening now on Amazon. It's the same exact playbook. If you buy ads, you get more people to purchase it. If more people purchase it, you get more rankings, you move up in the organic results. So to be number one in organic, you're probably going to have to spend money on the ads. So it's kind of confusing. Like if you're number one in organic, why would you buy ads? Well, you're one of the first five and you're the the sixth or the fifth or the sixth after the ad. So which is what you see. People will buy their own names and they'll be in the first three results on Google. So it's kind of uh, impossible to have a vibrant business if you don't buy those ads. And it's 100% paid for already. So what do I mean by that? If you Rachel look at Amazon service, they're already built their service. The ad business is just all profits. I mean, with the exception of maybe some de minimis amount of technology to serve them, some developers to build the software and a sales team, although much of this is probably self-serve, this is going to be an extraordinarily high margin business. The same is true for Uber, which we'll report next week. Uber, when they put ads in there, and you probably have seen them, you know, you're, you're in a taxi, you're in, a, you're in an Uber, or you're ordering food, and you have this NFL ad there telling you about the game tonight. It's kind of, you can't miss it. You have to look at it because you have to see your taxi coming, your captured audience. And think about the data Amazon has on you or the data Uber has on you. If you're a commerce business, the amount of data you have is extraordinary at the same time that Apple is taking away the data that Facebook would have. So these businesses, uh, these ad businesses for commerce companies are truly significant. And for the first time, I was buying some t-shirts and I used Amazon's checkout have you used that yet rachel where you use your amazon credentials oh yeah put your address in and payment on a totally clothing retailer or something like that the quicker the checkout the better it is in my opinion and i like it better than paypal's option for quick checkout because what paypal can do um is it kind of has a delay so if you i know i've heard from other people's experiences that they've checked out before and accidentally not transferred enough money or something right into their account. Um, they can still check out the project. Um, excuse me, they can still check out the product, but you can still get a um like non-sufficient fund fee if you use PayPal because you uh they have that like one day delay when they actually charge you. Whereas Amazon will charge you run a- right away. So it really doesn't have um any space for error there. So I love it. I'm a huge Amazon fan, especially living in the city. Uh sending my stuff right to Whole Foods to pick it up is pretty big. (laughs) And what's really nice is, you know, I have my if I go to my Amazon account, I can see my Amazon orders. And you know, if you so if you go to when you're on the Amazon interface, if you go to your account list, you can see your orders. When you click on orders, one of the tabs is Amazon pay. And I can see in one place, all of my uh, spend. So this is really nice to see it consolidated in one place. Uh, and I don't, I can buy direct from the merchant. So I think that business is going to be 
um, huge as well. And it's super competitive. Uh, advertising just extraordinary for um, Amazon. Now they don't consider it a pillar. So the three pillars, e commerce, AWS and subscriptions are the three pillars. I think the fourth one, which isn't going to show up in their revenue yet, is going to be healthcare, because mm. they announced they're doing uh, their drug uh, prescriptions, and they bought one medical. So I think that we're going to see uh, some really great uh, future revenue from that. Yeah, I totally agree. I'm, um, if you guys want to check out the one medical uh, founder, come talk to us. We can link that in the show notes because that was a really great conversation. And, and you know, even if we compare like Amazon's ad revenue to other uh, big tech companies, like Google's search revenue, like I said, that was down two percent. YouTube mm-hmm. ads revenue down eight percent. Meta's ad revenue down four percent. Um, so mm. Amazon's ad business just seems way more resilient than uh, Google, YouTube, and Meta. Yeah, it's new. Yeah. So that it's 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 new. So it's growing, uh, and advertisers are going to probably move some amount of spend from Meta, sl- aka Facebook, yep. and some spend from Google to uh, Amazon. But they're going to have to learn the interface, learn the creative. So it's a process. And then some folks uh, are not natural uh, advertisers on the Amazon ad network. So if you're advertising a TV show, I don't know that you're putting that on Amazon. But if you're uh, obviously doing e commerce, it's more natural. But yeah, this is going to be a huge business for them. Uh, and I think on all in Friedberg talked about it. Uh, we have a 30 second clip of that. So Amazon's ad business is booming, right? As Jamak pointed out earlier, but so much more of consumer behavior is shifting where people are going direct to e-commerce sites. And then the ads that are getting the highest click through and where advertisers are spending more and more money is on e-commerce sites. I know this from experience on a couple of boards I'm at where companies stopped spending on Facebook and Google and just started spending exclusively on Amazon. And that's where you get consumers that are much more likely to purchase. The purchasing proclivity is higher. The click-through rate is higher. So the return on ad spend is much higher. Yeah. And as I said, you have no choice. If you don't spend on it, your competitors, and a lot of these products are commodities, like a pair of ski socks, again, back to skiing on my mind, but I, you know, I buy ski socks on a pretty regular basis. You know, if you're, if you're not buying the ads, you're not going to get seen. And a lot of times I see on the ads, like this is a four and a half star with 3000 reviews. I really want to check out those socks. It's proven to me that they have a large number of people who've purchased them. So uh, Amazon is going to do fantastic. And yeah. Um, yeah, but yeah, not a lot of profit there. So that's something they're going to have to make a, a decision on is do they want to start showing a profit or do they just want to keep growing that top line and taking all that e-commerce share. They obviously have headwinds with Azure doing really well for Microsoft, and that's growing faster than AWS is. So AWS uh, could be a little bit challenged here. Uh, And you could see uh, Azure catching up and certainly chat GPT and that being available as part of Azure. That's headwinds. I'm also seeing in startups, Microsoft startup program, uh, which advertises here on the program, they give $150,000 in Azure credits and AWS, I don't see doing similar startup promotions. And so I think Azure is being really aggressive. Microsoft is being super aggressive and trying to win cloud business. If you're a SaaS or services company that stores customer data in the cloud, you need to be SOC 2 compliant from a third party to close big deals. And you need to use Vanta if you want to do this quickly and easily. Vanta makes it incredibly easy 
to get and renew your SOC 2. On average, Vanta customers are SOC 2 compliant in just two to four weeks, compared to three to five months without Vanta. And they partner with over two dozen audit firms who have been trained to file SOC 2 reports directly within Vanta. This is a total no-brainer. A bunch of my portfolio founders have used Vanta and have had amazing experiences. And one more time, if you don't have SOC 2 compliance, you can't close major customers. One major customer, keep your whole startup alive. That could be the difference between being profitable or losing money. You need to be SOC 2 compliant. And here's the best part. Vanta is going to give you $1,000 off. Get $1,000 off at vanta.com slash twist. That's vanta.com slash twist for $1,000 off your SOC 2 app. Oh, by the way, I think Jeff Bezos is coming back. I know it sounds crazy, but I think Amazon is going to have some significant headwinds and challenges. And so I could very much see Jeff Bezos coming back and maybe running the health group and just making sure that that works. But I think Bezos is going to just be like Bob Iger, going to do a couple of years off the grid and get bored and he's going to want to come back. So that's my prediction. You heard it here first. Oh, can't wait to clip this later. So um, we'll see if I'm right about this one. <laughs> oh. It'll be it'll be on TikTok if you are. This is going viral. What a great business, you know. Like, I mean, how many weeks can you do skiing on your yacht at the Grammys? Whatever Bezos is up to, you know, working on rocket ships on vacation. You know, someone like him is just gonna. He's he's so engaged in life that I think after a couple of years decompressing, um, he's gonna come back. Let's hope. Yeah. So. Um, we can move forward now, I guess, with, with yeah, Apple, Apple, like you were saying. So Apple, just like Google, um, they also missed on the top line and bottom line, but its stock is actually up 3% today. Hmm. Um, iPhone sales really missed revenue estimates by around $2.5 billion, and Mac sales missed by around $2 billion. Um, holiday buyers obviously tightened their belts a lot, and they were just not as active as Apple anticipated. And also, I'd like to note that the iPhone um, kind of came out around that time, like the holiday season, like it always does. And in my opinion, it just wasn't as impressive. And I wonder if that's like the 14. I, yeah. Yeah. The new one. Yeah. I have 13. I went to the Apple store recently. And I just, um, I, my daughters were getting boba and I was giving, uh, my, my daughter was out with one of her friends. So I gave them a little privacy to get their boba. And while they were getting their boba and going to Sephora, I just walked the Apple store and I picked up the 14. And I looked at my 13 and I was like, I, I'm, I'm not a price sensitive shopper. I always like to get the latest thing. And for the first time, I felt not compelled to take out my credit card. I was like, this 13 is enough. I don't want to have to unbox the phone. I don't want to have to set it up. And literally, not maybe a little bit in the back of my mind, austerity measures is a down market. I, I do think about austerity uh, frequently, but it was more just like the act of unboxing it having to return it and going through a half hour with the sales clerk. That was the friction for me that I was like, ah, there's not enough here for me to go through that 30 minutes. I just want the 30 minutes of my life. Yeah. Uh, so that is, I think, to your point, Rachel, it's not that compelling. And then I walked around, I looked at the iPad mini, and I was like, yeah, maybe I get an iPad mini. I always like this. Eh, nothing was super compelling to me. I look at the iPad. I looked at the new MacBook Air, which is amazing and extraordinary and beautiful machine. I was like, no, nope, my, my M1. Yeah macbook is just fine i got the big monitor on it i'm happy and so this is austerity now i did i, I do have to say i j traded uh, last week so on february 1st what is today the taste of there so two days ago i bought 500 more shares of amazon 500 more shares of apple 500 more shares of disney 
the Amazon trade is down a little bit. Uh, I guess I bought at $107 a share. It's at 105. I bought Apple at 145. Uh, and it's at 154. So I'm up on that one. And I bought Disney at 110. And it's at 111. So I'm up modestly on that one as well. But I just feel all three of those companies, Amazon, Apple, Disney, are just going to do extraordinary. And I'm not too worried about this pullback. The economy is obviously um, in a, a some type of recession, or we're in some sort of down market, even though it's not clear exactly it's a definition of a recession. But people are spending less. And uh, they're going to let their phones last another year, they're going to let their cars last another two years. And just austerity across the boards is I think the theme for 2023. Definitely. And if you're choosing between like that new MacBook that came out or the iPad, um, that M2 chip doesn't really for like the average person make that big of a difference between uh, the M1 chip and the iPads now, even though the Lenovo keyboards are kind of crappy. Um, I feel like in fact, I know because as a consumer, I went to the, the Apple store, I was going to buy a second uh, computer when I bought an iPad and just stuck one of those Lenovo keyboards over it. Yeah. The iPad sales actually increased almost 30%. Huh. Um, from $7.2 billion to $9.4 billion. And that was the only one out of those three categories to go up. And I don't think that's super su surprising because if people are tightening their belt and they are having to go buy a new MacBook mm. um, and the, the new MacBook that they that offers just isn't that big of a difference from the last one, you might as well just get an iPad um, with with how much it can do now, which is kind of cool. Yeah, this 10th generation iPad, which they just call iPad, comes yep. in a bunch of colors. It's an incredible deal. It's not expensive. I just upgraded uh, when this one came out, the 10th generation. It's a, it's quite a deal. It starts at like 450 bucks. And uh, I, I bought my twins. Uh, yeah, uh, new iPads, because they're yeah. all ones were so broken and janky. And it's got the flat bezels on the side, like the iPhone, you know, uh, design that everybody loves so much. And it's just a great bargain. So I could totally see people saying instead of getting a $2,000 laptop, I'll get a six or seven $800 iPad, which kind of does everything you need, right? Google uh, Drive, like all you need, just as long as you got a Google Doc in there for college, unless like yeah. you're doing some heavier, I, I did like a, some coding classes in college. And besides those, I basically just use Google Drive for everything. So as long as your iPad can get that, um, that could be your device to bring to class. So I'm interested. Yeah, to see how those uh, see if MacBooks go up, especially um, they, they have also in the software level made it really nice to have two windows up at a time. So you can have a browser on the left right. with your document and on the right, you can have a browser up with the Wikipedia or Grammarly or something. So this ability to have two different apps open or one takes up two thirds of screen one third, it's starting to feel more like a desktop, right? Uh, and so and the keyboards are so good. Yeah, I could see people buying them in lieu of buying more expensive laptops. It makes sense to me. The yeah. services business has been also doing fantastic. And they're still printing a ton of money net profits of $30 billion. I mean, the profit of this business is still extraordinary. Yeah. And what did this, how did the services business do? So the services revenue was $20.8 billion. And that's up 6% wow. year over year, up 8.3% quarter over quarter. And that really that was a bright spot. I mean, it beat estimates by like $300 million. Um, and remember services that includes all those subscriptions um, that they have plus Apple's app store fees. Mm. So like you said, the speed estimates, like it really, it really did do well. Well, if you think about the services business, that's almost $21 billion. And uh, if you look at like 
the MacBook, $7 billion, iPad, $9 billion, the watch and AirPods, $13 billion. Services is bigger than those three categories, and services is a third of the iPhone revenue. So even if iPhone uh, sales slow a little bit, people are going to buy you know, Apple Music, Apple TV, yeah. they're going to pay their app store 30% tax, you're going to need extra storage, because now with photos, there's no way to store all of your photos in year 5, 10, 15 of having a mobile phone, uh, you know, on your phone, so you're going to have to ha- pay for extra cloud. And then like news is actually a pretty good service. Uh, I find myself using uh, Google News a whole bunch. And then my kids use the I'm sorry, Apple News. And then my kids use Apple uh, Arcade. Uh, so when you have this family plan, whatever I'm paying for it, this Apple One or whatever it's called, their version of Prime, uh, I man, I spend a I spend a lot of money on it, and I get a lot of value from it, and I'll never get rid of it. So yeah. uh, this is I, a really bright spot for Apple. So it seems like each company, Apple had the bright spot of services and iPad, uh, Google, um, their cloud is doing pretty well. And then Amazon, their ad business is doing well. So, you know, even though they got headwinds, they they are doing really innovative product things. And I think when you're looking at these companies, you have to ask yourself, are they throwing off cash? And are they continuing to make innovative products that delight customers? I think in all three cases, they're still uh, throwing off some amount of cash, depending on the unit. And they're still delighting customers with great products. So I still love all three companies. As you know, I've been on a health kick for over the past year, and you know I care about data-driven solutions as well. And if you listen to this podcast, I bet you do too. So let me tell you about FitBod. It's a data-driven workout app that blends machine learning with exercise science. FitBod creates a custom, dynamic program based on your fitness goals, your experience, and what your available equipment is. And FitBod will maximize your fitness gains by varying the intensity and volume between your sessions. You can customize your length of workout, what muscles to target, and so much more. Look at this demo. Hey, let's say you got 30 minutes to work out and you want to work on your chest, triceps, and abs. But let's say I'm staying at an Airbnb and there's no equipment. Well, FitBod can create a perfectly optimized workout based on these parameters. Check it out. It's absolutely amazing. FitBod takes the guesswork out of fitness. Just open the app and start making progress. Get 25% off your FitBod subscription or try the app for free. When you sign up now at fitbod.me slash twist, that's F-I-T-B-O-D dot M-E slash T-W-I-S-T for 25% off. Awesome. I'm excited to see what happens next quarter, especially um, you kind of mentioned this last time we did earnings reports. I believe this was on the time when we had Sunny and Vinny on, which was cool because I think Molly was also out last time. Um this isn't in the notes, by the way, but you mentioned how you thought we were basically, I think, last quarter, halfway through um, the kind of recession that maybe we had two or three more quarters. I'd love to yes. hear your thoughts on how much more time you think we have now um, moving forward in this in this kind of like downturn. Yeah, so we had the second quarter, the third quarter uh, were down markets and then the fourth quarter, right? And so now here we are in the first quarter. I've said... These recession type things typically are six quarters. So three quarters, uh, you know, second, third and fourth, and now we're in the first. So we could be four of six or seven quarters away from a normal environment. Of course, the stock market popped. The Fed uh, was talking about how 
you know, they were having a disinflation. Uh, they said that like a dozen times on the call. They were very dovish. And they did a 25% rate hike, not a 50. I'm sorry, a 25 BIP rate hike, not a 50 BIP. Uh, and they're going to do another 25 probably next month. So I think the market is starting to think soft landing. And then we had the jobs report come out today. And the jobs report was supposed to be like 150 or so. And it was 500 new jobs were added. So now we have a 50 year and in some states like Utah, or some cities like Salt Lake City, we have record low unemployment since we started recording unemployment. Yeah. So the fact is, I think young people of which you are one, uh, and maybe you could tell me this anecdotally true, a lot of folks who had maybe some savings, maybe some stimulus, maybe they had some great consulting gigs, they spent all that money. And now they have to get back to work, they got to pay bills. There's not as much saving left. They may have bought some NFTs. They're worthless, or they flipped some NFTs previously that kept them afloat. Whatever the the confluence of events were during the pandemic, when we didn't go out and spend, pandemic ended. Everybody spent YOLO. Now we're sitting here in 2023. It's maybe time to get back to work, and so some normal relationship is going to occur, and people have to take jobs, whether they're a waiter, or a copy editor, or a developer, or whatever you're going to have to go back to work at some point. Is that yeah. what you're seeing anecdotally or? I'm seeing a lot more of my friends that did get laid off, um, especially from big tech. I had a ton of friends in big tech. Ah. Um, and if they got laid off, I actually don't see them going back to traditional nine to five jobs, but I don't see them going to Bali. Like I think like mm. or Lisbon, like they're not taking those crazy vacations um, and not coming back to the States for like six weeks on end. Like I thought they were that they were doing about a year ago. Um, instead, I see a lot of them doing things like consulting for other startups, um, trying ah. to start things their their own. Like this definitely isn't like that vacation mindset, I think, um, like it was this time last year. And the January jobs report, according to CN CNBC, um, it showed that non-farm payrolls increased by 517,000. And Crazy. that's insane. That's insane. That's way higher than the 187,000 um, that the market actually estimated. Like that's that's crazy. The chart, it, it's almost like it's a mistake. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you the chart here to pull up, uh, Brian, if you don't mind. If you look at this New York Times chart um, from January 22, you, you almost feel as if, take a look at this, Rachel, that some sort of mistake has been made in the chart because um, you had last month or for the last, I don't know, it looks like one, two, three, four, five months. We've had between about 250, maybe 300,000 jobs. And it was going down for like four months in a row, five months in a row. And then all of a sudden, we have double the number of jobs as last month, 250 last month, and now 517 in January. What happened exactly? Was it that people were taking off for the holidays and then everybody decided, hey, new year, new me, I got to get a job? And they just, because th there's two jobs out there for every unemployed American. And we're now at 3.4%. It is the lowest unemployment since 1969. There are many factors at work here. People retired early. We've talked about them here. People died of COVID, sadly. Um, some people because of COVID said, you know what, I'm just gonna retire early. Um, it's not worth the pressure. And then obviously, we're not letting people immigrate into the country over the last two administrations, Biden and Trump, both anti-immigration, and we were anti-immigrant during COVID, obviously, because um, we were concerned about people spreading the virus. I, I don't know how this gets resolved. And this is, um, this could cause 
more inflation. If people have more money to spend, could they start spending it? I mean, people who have jobs spend money. Labor force participation, uh, which has not changed all that much, um, you know, is at 62.4%. The peak yeah. when I was in my 30s, I think was 69%. So we're still off 10% from the peak participation. Um, I'm interested to see everybody. too, like if people will continue to spend money um, like they have been, just because like even going grocery shopping, it is huh. actually insane. Like it is nuts. And I think like small changes like that, even though like some things around me haven't changed, like I haven't seen as many, although there are some like restaurant prices, for example, um, it was restaurants, we, restaurant week in New York City. I didn't notice restaurant week being any more expensive than any of the other ones in the past. However, just because I'm starting to see like those day to day prices like gas. Groceries. What do they charge for restaurant week now? Because when I was a kid, they made it the year. So in yeah. 1999, it was $19.99 to go in for lunch during restaurant week. And you got three courses yeah. for $19.99. What is it now? So at the I went to um, the Red Hook uh, Lobster. I believe it's called like the Lobster Pound or the Red Hook. Uh, I think it's the Red Hook Lobster Pound. Mike Savino yeah. actually has been to it before yeah. too, which is yeah. kind of cool. Um, their um, price was around $30 and it was for lunch. Um, and that was for two courses. It was great, wonderful, highly recommend. Um, but it seems like $30 is pretty much the standard dinner, yeah. though, is like $60. Um, which again, if in New York City, that's pretty, pretty good deal. It's pretty freaking good for a three course dinner. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Two course lunch, three course dinner, 30, 45, or 60. New York restaurant week. Um, yeah, this was like a great thing to get people out and to try all these new restaurants. And man, it, it was amazing how packed places got. Um, yeah. And nuts. it was also like a fun vibe too, right? Do they give you a prefix menu though? It's like a shortened menu, like pick yep. from these it's three appetizers. Menu. To these three. Yeah. Exactly. It's a lot of young people are there too, because it's normally like people that can't afford the restaurant. Um, it's normally you have to get a reservation to go places. For example, um, I don't think Valentine's day, uh, is covered. I think Valentine's day is right after, but when I was booking like reservations, for example, for Valentine's day, I actually had to book it January 14th at like 9am right when they opened because stuff for like the whole oh. month is just completely booked. Oh, wow. Look at this. It's a four week program. So yeah. week one, week two, week three, week four, and they can participate in any number of those weeks. Exactly. So they don't have to participate in all mm. of them, which kind of saves the restaurants a little bit, I think. Because um, yeah. if you do all four weeks, I'm sure that's a little bit that's a taxing. Little that's yeah. a little bit taxing. But I'm looking yeah. at them. And uh, the first two restaurants I picked up on the website um, are, in fact, uh, doing all four weeks. They're participating in all four weeks. So very cool. Uh, if you're in New York City, go see those great restaurants. Awesome. All right. Well done, Rachel. Uh, great job. Any more questions for me as we wrap here on these three big names? I think I will have to message you later with any more questions. I'm sure I have a ton. Um, <laughs> this is the first time, I guess, in 2008, I was 10 years old. So I have not really been through uh, a recession like this before. So I'm sure some yeah. are going to pop up, but not really too sure to ask about yet. I mean, it's basically, uh, this one is pretty shocking, I have to say, because in the previous ones, we never had these high watermark of uh, entitlement and how easy business was. It was really easy to raise money this last couple of years, really easy to get revenue or to get people to try your SaaS product. Everything was easy. Uh, the only thing that was hard was raise, was uh, hiring people. 
Mm. Now the opposite. It's easy to hire people, at least in tech, because we have so many people available. So and because you have a global workforce and people have figured out remote. So it's really easy to hire people now. And I think we're going to start to see salaries normalize mm. across the globe. And so that's going to be particularly hard for maybe some people who got Google jobs, non technical Google jobs, and maybe as we saw in some of those reports, were getting paid twice as much as somebody doing an, the same non technical job at Amazon, or Microsoft, and at Google, they're getting paid twice as much, maybe you have some friends in that sort of bucket. And they were doing a PR or marketing job or PM job, and they were getting paid some crazy amount, they may never get that salary again, or it might take 20 yep. years to get that salary again, or they might need to reeducate and get more technical to get somewhere near that salary. So I think that's the just like we had some valuations that are peak were peak valuations, we might have had peak employment compensation for certain jobs for Definitely. developers, and maybe not. Honestly, know. now that you say that I actually ha haven't had any friends um, really be impacted, to be honest with you, except for my friends in tech. Mm. None of my friends in at the banks have really been impacted. Um, none of my friends that work in healthcare. In fact, I have a ton of friends. Um, because of the pandemic happening in 2022 and it being 2023, that two year mark, if they did extend and do um, a further two year program to go into the medical field um, after seeing what happened in 2020, I have a lot of friends just joining the healthcare industry mm. and that seems to be hiring phenomenally well. Um, mm. So really cool to see that. And I know that it also talked about in that jobs report that it added like, 58,000 jobs in healthcare and you can really see yeah. that. Healthcare we're going to be behind the eight ball because we have an aging population, people live longer and uh yeah, we're, we're, that's not going to that trend will not correct it. We're going to be short staffed. Yeah. So yeah, I think you're going to the tech people are the ones impacted. Any other industry services like healthcare, they're not going to uh that's not going to change in our lifetime. All right, we have uh, a great interview Molly did with one of our accelerator companies uh, Perrin Davidson from Eater Club is going to be on the program next and then after that of course you're doing one of your okay boomers so next up LA 26 interview uh, launch accelerator our 26 awesome. class all right everybody I am back interviewing founders from the launch accelerators 26th cohort and today we have Perrin the founder of Eater Club welcome to twist thank you excited to be here I know, me too. There's been a lot of excitement about Eater Club. I feel like you. there's a lot of buzz, a lot of buzz around Eater Club. I appreciate it. Tell us, uh, I guess, in your own words slash pictures, what, what you do. Yeah, so let me just play uh, a little bit of a, a demo that we have and excited to share what we're doing. But ultimately, we are a next-gen distributor disrupting the food service industry by creating a new kind of curated approach to helping the next-gen restaurant operator. Yeah, so Eater Club was born out of our editorial approach with LA Eats, and it really was actually trying to solve a true pain point. So we've been in over 800 kitchens, interviewed hundreds and hundreds of chefs from amazing pop-ups to Michelin stars, you name it. And in that process, we really learned a lot about what's working for them and what's not. And in that world, we realized that there's a giant industry issue of really the world's you know best brands really can't find these great restaurants and restaurants have a hard time sourcing amazing brands. And for a lot of people to understand, 70% of the million plus restaurants in the United States are all single unit operators. So it's the person you imagine down the street that you might know who's wearing many, many hats. So they don't have a lot of free time. They're trying to hire, they're trying to stock their restaurants, they're trying to get customers. So really, we wanted to bring our background and ability in terms of storytelling and curation and bring that to a wholesale food service club, really in a way that makes it super easy for them to order, 
where the old way was a lot of triplicate carbon copy legacy kind of approach. There's a lack of transparency in pricing. And really, we're all about trying to make it as easy as possible for them. And in the process, if we're doing that, we're helping these amazing uh, vendors find great brands in the process. So it's supposed to be a really holistic approach. If we're doing it right, it means we're putting great products into great restaurants. It means we're helping sell them. And I'd love to get into a little bit how we support them after the sale. And ultimately, that means the vendor's working and then it works for us. So one of the things that's unique about our approach... Well, let me... Yeah, let me back you up a minute and just make sure I understand. So basically, you have all these restaurants and these restaurants are standalone. So they're not part of a chain. And they they just literally have a hard time finding high quality or affordable like food and drink for their restaurants yeah anything it could be great sustainable packaging and also the larger distributors let's just say the smaller you are the less of a priority you are as it might make sense in a new world where operators are used to shopping on amazon and that traditional digital commerce experience it's really great how do we actually bring that to those food service operators to have a similar experience and not have to have a salesperson show up and really can shop on your time but what we do that's even more important is we're trying to cut out the middleman. So for us, it's about creating story as the new salesperson and really connecting these brands directly to restaurants with nobody in between. So we produce fully original business and consumer content for all of the curated vendors that we bring on the platform. Everyone's invited specifically to join. And that's a really important part. We know that ultimately, if we can be that gatekeeper, we're helping not only the great restaurants find great products, but also the customers who are the ultimate judge and jury are going to love them too. And so this is with- why this is why it's club. It's like curated. You're invited in to on both sides of the marketplace, the restaurant yeah. side and the vendor side. Yes. And right now, okay. uh, restaurants are only invite only as well, too. So we can make sure that we have a really great experience for both sides of the marketplace. Gotcha. Okay, great. So you have this club. You are a vendor. You are a restaurant. You're connected there. You can kind of shop online. and then, And then I think you were getting to this part where you support after. Yeah, that's one of the things we think is really important, which is it's great to get accounts, it's great to drop off wonderful products. But in a world where they're so busy, how do you actually help these restaurateurs sell them? So for us, it's about creating original content for the consumer as well. So everyone, whether it's a 30-second founder story, 15-second, or about the specific products, we want to catch the customer in the moment before they come into the restaurant, when they're hungry and they're looking for where to eat or where they're checking out another brand. So it's our job to help these restaurants meet the customers where they are. 90% of customers will experience a restaurant in some capacity online before ever dining there. So our goal is to give them great content to help them meet those people where they are and also grow their audience. Everyone's looking to grow their online channels. And for us, it's about those 10 real customers that become regulars. How do we get them to be excited about some new sustainable type of coffee? We got to help them understand what it is if they want to help reduce that carbon emission or if they want to have something with a lower water impact or if they're just looking for something that's a little bit more transparent without artificial flavors. We we cover organic, natural, sustainable, emerging brands, everything and anything that might be more interesting. And also that's a little bit more premium. It requires a little bit more storytelling. And ultimately, that's what's really important is that these products are exciting. They are interesting. But to get into them, we want to have that founder story as part of it so that they can understand where this journey started. It didn't just start in this great bottle or great product, but it started with someone's idea. So part of it is bringing those people into the process and returning that value by cutting out the salesperson so that we can give better prices to the restaurants. So would you say that you are a wholesale marketplace and a studio? Like, I is love that sort that. of the... That's very much... <laughs> we, want, we keep trying to defi- how we want to define ourselves. That's why we've kind of said next-gen distributors supporting next-gen restaurants. But yeah, we see ourselves as a, a wholesale food service company, a media company, whether that's a studio mm-hmm. or a network. There's so many ways of looking at it. But 
our experience in producing content for the last few years has really positioned us well. We know exactly what makes sense, what's scalable. Ultimately, creating first-class content is not cheap or easy, but we've come up with really original processes to make it a lot faster and cheaper. And ultimately, it's that editorial approach that's so important for us. So it's worked at LA Eats. It's the same approach we're bringing in terms of curation. And that's what we think is so important. As we continue to want to grow, it's about finding new restaurants that we can cover in that process. It makes us more valuable to the vendors because we've grown our audience. And in that process, we're actually growing our consumer audience along the way. So it's a flywheel that we're looking to keep pushing, but it has to do with authenticity and integrity and really standing behind the products and the restaurants. And that's something that can help separate us. And we're excited. The world's so crazy. Everyone's bombarded with content, advertising, marketing in every way. So how can we just make it a little easier for the restaurants and a little easier for the customers? Yep. Talk to me about the LA Eats origin story. What what is that? For it was people a, who don't it know. Literally, uh, my sister and I wanted to start it a few years ago. It was really just a casual thing, and the whole idea was in a world where things are super busy. How can we share things that we stand behind that we would say are eight out of ten or better in the food category, and were twenty dollars mm-hmm. or less initially, which was most things. Eventually, after we got to five hundred curated reviews, we removed the twenty dollar cap because. Maybe you want to have a great $50 or $100 steak, whatever it is. We always say, it's not that everyone has to have it every night. It's just everyone has a special moment. There's always a right time and a right place. So we decided to have a little bit broader spectrum, but at the same time, still just doing things that are 8 out of 10 or better or that we can stand behind. That's what's really important. So in a world where plenty of people share bad reviews or other stuff, we figured, hey, people just want to know where to eat, not where not to eat. So that's the whole idea of of our approach. And we have an emoji-based review format that we've been using for the last several years. Uh, really just trying to have a quick takeaway. Again, a world super crowded. How can we give you a quick food score, service score, ambiance? We have an eats fact with everything. We share the location, the item price, just that top level information that kind of is the most important. Um, but ultimately, everything on our feed and everything we've done is something we can stand behind. We can say, go try. Not everything's a 10, but that's okay. Right. And this is LA Eats official on Instagram. Yes. Right. Is Please that okay? Follow us. So Check you've us got out. like almost 100,000 followers. Um, and then the content that you're creating for the restaurants and vendors who are part of the marketplace, does it go on that Instagram? It's for their own social channels. Like what does the distribution look like? Great question. So for us, it's it's kind of three parts. One is there's the business content, which lives on our platform. And then we do some internal promotions, like interstitial things like that, that will be on LA Eats and some of our other channels. The consumer content is actually meant to live on all of our buyers platforms. So they Got may it. have two, 3,000 followers, whatever it is. Any number is good because those are real people, real customers, real fans. If we can get a few of them excited about it, that's going to translate into trying great products. So that's really important for us. But at the end of the day, we do bring our audience, which has some of the world's best chefs, restaurateurs, operators. So we leverage all the different channels in different ways, depending on what makes sense and, and at a different time. But we want to make sure that the restaurants are actually leaning into putting it on their platforms and their channels to get those core audience excited. Amazing. All right. And then the accelerator style questions are next. How? Um, tell us how you make money. We have an interesting approach. So we've taken a hybrid model compared to a traditional distributor. We have a, a membership fee for our vendors. Again, we're trying to return value. There's a setup fee of $1,499 to join and a fee between $89 and $299 a month, depending on what services they get with us. We actually handle fulfillment. We can do cold chain storage. So we have a whole variety depending on what's needed. Um, and then we have a 15% take rate. And that's what we're doing with the vendors. So we can keep our cost down in terms of what the final price point is. So we can ultimately keep these more premium products priced a little more aggressively. So we're trying to pass that on. Uh, Restaurants will pay a small monthly fee probably in late 2024 when we're ready to turn that on. But right now, we're just inviting restaurants that we are excited about to join and and really just having them kind of leverage some of the the products we're offering. And then does that... Talk a little bit about that 
pricing model and how it helps maybe lower prices throughout the chain? Yeah. So for us, a traditional distributor has a much higher margin, which if you start to tack it on, if we had a higher margin, that means there's a higher final price point to deliver those goods to the restaurant, which means by the time they're marking it up to their appropriate margin, the price could be on an average drink, maybe 50 cents more than what it would be with our lower margin, because we're able to keep it at a more aggressive price wholesale price point to them. We also bake everything in. We make it super easy. We, we make the shipping is all baked in. Everything is next day that we can deliver. So the goal is to try to simplify everything possible so these restaurants can try products or you know fulfill and kind of pivot from something they're already offering. So right. they may want to bring in a new SKU. And we want to make it as easy as possible to turn that cost into a profit for them. And then talk to me about scale. What does the path look like to $10 million and $100 million? And how hard is this to scale if you're doing fulfillment in addition to connecting? Absolutely. So we're really excited to be working with 3PL partners that allow us to kind of scale nationally. And so where the demand is, we can kind Third of scale up. Third-party logistics? Third-party logistics, yes. Right. On the wholesale side, which maybe people aren't as familiar with, it's very yeah. common more on the D2C side, but we're trying to leverage that same kind of warehouse capacity to help us scale. And that starts with us back to that editorial flywheel. So as we grow through California, we'll be expanding our coverage into Northern California. Then as we grow uh, East, we'll be expanding our coverage into certain warehouses in Texas, Chicago, uh, Florida, New York. So we'll be targeting those main markets initially and kind of continuing to grow. It's all about really building the relationships and having great coverage. And in that process, continuing just to grow our audience. And then we just make ourselves more valuable to the vendors. We're also looking internationally to source vendors exclusively for Eater Club as well. So we're trying to look across the globe, across the country for great products. And in the process, kind of help launch some of these emerging brands. Many of the companies we have are their first time in Southern California, definitely their first time in food service in Southern California, if not. So we're trying to help them just really build that brand awareness and we're comfortable working with organizations that have a great mission, great founders, but maybe zero brand awareness. And we're not mm -hmm. turned off by that at all. What, just out of curiosity, is the kind of ideal customer profile? Like what's the, the restaurant in the sweet spot for you? The ideal customer profile is like a, a popular, like a deli or a cafe or a restaurant, kind of the, the place that might be in your town or on the main street that's, that's a little bit more interesting. And at the end of the day, they're catering and serving an audience that's a bit more excited to try new products that are a little bit more open-minded. That's the ideal customer. And the complement is also with the ghost kitchens and virtual concepts and hospitality groups. So when mm. we're not servicing the independent restaurateur, our digital front of the house is really important for hospitality groups to be able to market and also for ghost kitchens that have no front of the house whatsoever. So we're trying to provide value to all of those sectors and let the chains kind of be the chains. And in a world where the independent operator needs to stand out, how can we give them products that get customers excited to ultimately come in the door? So we want to say, hey, we're the first to carry this, or we're, we've now changed over to a new sustainable product, whatever it might be. But if we tell the story right, that's what we believe is going to lead to the foot traffic of people coming in. If you pick curated products, we know they're ultimately going to love it, which is really important. So we're trying to really think through all the way to the customer, even though we are a, a, a B2B. We consider ourselves B2B to C in a way, even though we don't sell to the customers. Right. I'm trying to put this into like a framework that people would understand in terms of a restaurant. So not like, not like a Katz's delicatessen where you're going to go because you know, you're going to get kind of roughly the same thing all the time, but more like an indie Dean and DeLuca. If Dean and DeLuca was more of like a food, a restaurant instead of like a grocery. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. I guess another answer for those that love the Irwan is like the equivalent of the Irwan restaurant or place like that. Even though I would say they're a bit more boutique, we're trying to be a little bit more accessible and, the other thing that we're trying to do is that these are the first tier of restaurants that we want to take it to, but ultimately mm -hmm. we believe everyone should have better products that are cleaner and better for people. So how do we actually get them into the places that people are the most excited about now, but ultimately help them bring the price down so it becomes accessible to that next set of restaurants that would say, hey, I can't afford that. I might like it. 
how can we help get the price down to make those products more accessible? Because we want to grow the market. We don't want to just go after what's there. We want to help people understand that there's an opportunity to increase what that market share is, but it's up to us. And that's why we're so excited to do that selling and not leave it to the vendor or the restaurant. Amazing. Eaterclub.app is where you can find it. Perrin, thanks so much and congrats on what you've built so far. Thank you so much. This was great. All right. Next up, uh, great job, Molly, on Eater Club uh, is an OK Boomer. Who did you have on OK Boomer this time? So this time I had a guest um, that has been long awaited for me, um, Erica Solvenleinen. Um, sorry if I butchered that last name. Erica is the CEO at Slush, which is a student-led, not-for-profit based uh, kind of like tech program based in Helsinki. And they have a giant event that I went to. Huge. Really cool. And it's like an- Oh, you went event. to Slush? When did, did you go to Slush? By accident. I visited Helsinki. I wanted to go to my first solo female travel trip. And I messaged the city of Helsinki. I was like, hey, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I do for work. This is what I do for pleasure. This is, I gave them a list. I gave them, I was like, city of Helsinki, you don't have any female solo traveling stuff. What do I know to do? They ah. took me um, on a tour of like an egg alternative egg factory because I told them I was a pescatarian. Um, ah. I went to slush with a bunch of other people around my age. Helsinki's wow. wonderful. It, city of Helsinki. When did you do that? BFFs. Uh, I took a vacation right before Thanksgiving. This is a while oh, ago. Really? I wanted to get oh. Erica on, but being the well, but CEO, last year you did it just busy. past year. Yeah. Oh, they invited me. They've been lobbying me to come to slush oh, all these years, totally but I just go. I, they insane. asked me to keynote it every year, and I'm. Uh, the problem is, you know, it's like, there's so many speaking gigs I get offered, yeah. but I've really wanted to go to slush and Finland is amazing. So that's yeah. awesome. You had a great time. Wonderful. Um, the cool, I think she's the prime minister who is, she's controversial for a little bit because she, ah. she had that one partying photo. She spoke at it. And oh, that she did. was really cool. Yeah. That was awesome. I, leave the prime minister alone. Yeah. Sana Marin. I think she's cool. Sana Marin. Uh, the, unfortunately, there's one person I wanted to see speak there. But she was unable. I think she was sick or something. It was Sophia Amoruso. And I saw she just recently raised um, yeah, Sophia Yeah, I'm an LP. Yeah. yeah, from Girlboss. Yes. Uh, I uh, Nasty just, Gal. Nasty Young uh, Girlboss. I just became an LP in yeah. her fund. And oh, amazing. she's yeah, raising her trust first fund. fund. Correct? Yeah, trust fund. Doesn't yeah. have trust, but also like trust fund. But she's not yeah. a trust fund baby. She's an actual hardcore entrepreneur and yeah. a friend of the pod. All right. Well, actually, we should book her to be on the pod. We should. We uh, totally should. She's Let's she's have really Sophia on the pod. Yeah, yeah well, good friend of mine. Erica All and right. I talked about Slush's ecosystem and her role in the origins of Slush, but ah. um, hopefully next year I'll be able to go again and we'll yeah. actually get to hear, hear uh, Girl Bosses talk. Congratulations and uh, enjoy the interview, everybody. Okay, Erica, thank you so much for joining me on this segment of OK Boomer. Erica Savalainen is the CEO at Slush, which is an amazing student-led startup event based in Helsinki, Finland that I had the honor of attending this past year. Again, Erica, thank you. Thanks for having me. So Slush isn't just a tech event. It feels like to call it a tech event is a little bit of a disservice. Can you please explain to everybody what Slush is? Yes. Um, so Slush is a movement led by uh, students and recent graduates. Uh, our mission is to help and create founders to change the world. Uh, and Yes, you're right. Our main tool for that uh, is a tech event. So 13,000 people in Helsinki uh, every November. Um, however, uh, actually, when you look at our team, our team members don't really feel like they're event organizers. We rather see, see ourselves as uh, young people uh, learning as much, much as they can uh, about startups and entrepreneurship while they're at Slush. Uh, and then 
once uh, a team member has spent a few years in the team, we hope uh, that everyone will kind of go to their next adventure and maybe build a company uh, as a founder, operator, or, or join a VC. Do you know what percentage of the students that are helping create slash actually become founders themselves? I don't have an exact number because, of course, there's some lag. Like, not everyone founds a company directly after. Yeah. Um, however, uh, I would say that majority of our team members end up in the ecosystem. Wow. Okay. And also, uh, also the number of companies founded by, founded by our alumni uh, is growing year by year. I think there's at least three companies cooking like uh, under the radar at the moment uh, by wow. previous team members. So, very cool. So. Before I went to Finland, and Finland was my first solo trip I ever did, and Slush was a big part of it, so thank you. Um, but before I went to Finland, I only really knew two startups that came out of Helsinki or Finland in general. One of them, I think, was Aura Ring, and the other one was Angry Birds. What mm-hmm. startups have come out of Slush members or operators? Yeah, I think the uh, most famous one would be Volt, which is a food de- delivery startup uh, recently acquired by DoorDash, actually. Uh, and uh, Volt was founded by uh, Miki Kuusi, uh, the first student CEO uh, of Slush. Um, and actually, the early team was fully comprised of Slushers, and uh, many Slushers joined uh, after. So I, I guess that is the kind of most exciting growth story we've had uh, this far. But many younger companies kind of going to the same direction. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I saw that Volt got acquired. That's really, really cool. And I know Slush has been around for a while. I believe it started in 2008, although online there are a ton of different like origin stories. What's the origin story that you think is true? Because I saw two and I'm interested to see which one you think. <laughs> yeah, uh, I actually do know that this one is true. Um, oh. So... <laughs> So Slush was uh, correctly uh, founded uh, in 2008. And back then, it was an initiative of five Finnish entrepreneurs. Uh, and they were worried about Finland in general, uh, like the lacking attitude of entrepreneurship, uh, the lacking networks of people wanting to build companies, and also the lack of venture capital uh, available in, in Finland for Finnish founders. Um, and they decided to, to organize a small event uh, to tackle that. So a few hundred people uh, in, in one room. Um, however, these people were busy founders, um, so they didn't really have time to commit for this side, side project. Uh, so luckily, uh, Peter Westerbakka, who is one of the core team members in uh, Rovio, uh, the creator of Angry Birds that you just uh, mentioned, met this young guy called Miki Kuusi. And uh, Miki was back then uh, a uh, president of a student society called Alto ES. And uh, he was extremely eager to have an impact and change the world. Um, And uh, this group of uh, Finnish entrepreneurs ended up handing Slush, this small event, to the hands of this student association. Uh, the student association didn't really like uh, the kind of small scale, so so they dart, started growing uh, the event heavily. Uh, and a few years after, uh, it was 10,000 people, then 15,000 people, wow. then 20,000 people. Uh, and now it is an extremely strong movement uh, for yeah. over 10 years. But the first one was already 10,000 people? Um, not really. So it was like increasing with thousands of people year okay. by year. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I would say, wow, that's a really big one. Um, I was in a student-run venture capital club 
in college and we had like a pitch event. And I can't imagine putting on the level of professionalism you guys do during the slush event. And I know there are other locations of slush that happen. I saw one was in Tokyo and there was one, I think in Shanghai. Um, are these still run by students and do you guys have to do them remotely or are these done by people actually based in those country? Ah, it's a great question. Um, so yeah, we've had many uh, global editions of, of slush events uh, and our way of doing things has always been kind of believing the believing in a local team and uh, like uh, if you want to create impact it has to start from the grassroots uh, so our global events have always been run by local uh, local teams um, at the moment we don't have any large-scale global events we're instead focusing uh, on relevance over scale in, in Helsinki uh, but yeah okay that's awesome I feel like when I was at the event, there was a lot of other people that were, I met up with some journalists and they said they spoke at like other events and different, like different kinds of slush parties and things like that, um, called like slushed, which I thought was really cool. So really awesome to see your guys' reach. And I know as CEO, there's been several different CEOs, obviously, because I feel like you're your CEO during like when you're in college and when you graduate college, you might move on, like you said, to starting a company or joining a startup. How long are CEOs um, in the position, like the position that you are in? And how often do you guys have to, is it like a voting system? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Um, so nothing's set in stone. So it might change based, based on the situation. But, but uh, the idea is that we would rotate CEO every, every two years. Okay. And, uh, it is fair, fairly, uh, or the reason is basically to give opportunities always for the, for the next generation. So this is no one's life work, uh, rather, rather than a launchpad. Um, and, uh, maybe my answer to, to how the CEO is selected is a bit boring. So, uh, the board will nominate the CEO as, uh, as, as in many companies. However, um, it is often chosen from the team. Mm. among people who worked uh, for the community for, for several years and kind of learned a lot while doing that and also kind of developed love towards the, to, towards the work that we do. Okay, so will this be your second year or? Yeah, so I'll be okay. on board uh, still this year. And then let's see, I, I am sure that my uh, successor will be amazing, even though I'm not uh, certain who it will be yet. <laughs> yeah, that's super exciting. And it's really cool how you do it um, by the board. And is the board comprised also of all students or is it of like former slush members as well? Um, yes, our board consists of former slushers. Uh, so, so many of former slush CEOs and also a few kind of more experienced members of the Finnish startup ecosystem. So it really mm. is like a, a by the community for the community movement. Yeah. And as CEO, what does that actually entail? Like, what are you doing uh, for slush? Yeah. Um, so slush, uh, it, it, it actually is like quite a complex product. So putting together a, uh, a 12,000 people, uh, event, uh, we have 10 million in revenue. We have a full-time team of 50 people and, and all that. So, um, it is a lot of like, uh, leadership, uh, and management, uh, making sure that we have clear goals. Uh, we understand how, how to get to those goals. Uh, and we understand, uh, kind of um, how each and every team member's work contributes in, in achieving what we want to achieve. After this position, do you think that you want to be CEO of your own company? Um, 
Yes, I think the more time you spend in an environment like slush, um, the harder it becomes to imagine anything else than ultimately building your own own company. So definitely, I will want to found a company in the future, Uh, whether it will happen directly after this. Uh, who knows? Uh, but it will definitely be my end game. And your student during all of this, right? Is this that does the do the universities of Helsinki like cut you any slack or anything because they know that you're doing this? Um, the university system in Finland is actually fairly flexible, um, so it is fairly easy to start a job, like take a job uh, alongside your studies. Um, what happens to many SLAS team members is, of course, that they kind of, uh, when they get on board, uh, they see that there's a lot more learning uh, in actually working for Slush than, than studying. So uh, the university might not always be that happy uh, for, for that decision. Uh, but then um, at the same time, I do feel that the kind of atmosphere in the universities here, here in Helsinki is very supportive for students taking on different kind of initiatives and kind of learning also outside of the lecture halls. And what's your major? Uh, I major in finance. Oh, that's awesome. How old are you right now? Uh, I'm 27. So I actually am uh, like an older slusher and uh, I did kind of um, stop studying full time a few years back because I got caught by, by slush. Uh, I think our average age in the team might be somewhere around 24. Wow, that's still, that's absolutely incredible being a CEO of such a large organization. And how many people um, make up Slush? Um, So as said, um, we see our team as a place to learn a lot about building companies. Mm -hmm. And I think how our team functions also emulates a growth company uh, to some extent. Uh, so we start each year with uh, around 20 people uh, and scale up to 50 full-time employees uh, closer wow. to the event in the fall. Uh, and finally, uh, for the event, 1,500 volunteers uh, will join the ranks. Okay. So at that point, it is a rather big, big operation. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so when you're doing this, you're also a student. Um, is this something where you guys can like give yourself a salary or is this something that you have to do like fully volunteer in this position? Yeah, um, we do have a full-time team uh, that is paid. Um, so okay. yes, uh, there is a salary. Um, however, I think it is important to recognize that any community of this size wouldn't live without people volunteering and wanting to yeah. give back. Um, so so I guess that the salary isn't why anyone's joining rather than actually yeah. learning and, and uh, being part of the community. But it gives. I like that you guys at least are given a chance to. I feel like if you had to also focus on another chance, like okay, how do I afford to like live? And yeah. being able now to at least get a paycheck lets you be all in at slush one hundred percent. Yeah, definitely. Which I think of course, like, uh, if you, if you needed to think of like uh, maintaining your your life uh, without salary, then of course you wouldn't be able to focus on what matters at your work. So yeah, that's necessary. That's awesome. Very cool. And I guess my last question. And this is kind of a big one, so you could take a while if you want. What problems are most likely to occur at student-led ventures like Slush? So if other students are listening to this and they want to become <laughs> like a CEO of their own like student-led organization, what yeah. should they be looking out for? That is a great question. Mm, 
there is one clear problem, but at the same time, I also do think that it, it is a problem that necessarily don't need to get fully resolved. Um, that is the fact that when your organization is run by students and recent graduates, uh, the rotation is, is rather high. Like you will have new team members joining and uh, more experienced team members uh, leaving. And that's part of the game. That's part of, part of the uh, deal uh, in a way. Yep. Of course, uh, with that rotation, uh, there's something we, we might call uh, organizational Alzheimer at slush. So, so you do lose some, some human capital with that. Um, and there are many things to do to tackle that, to ensure that there's this kind of learning over different generations uh, so that we actually end up improving and not reinventing the wheel uh, year yep. after year. Um, after, after the, uh, at the same time, I wouldn't be too scared of this challenge because as said uh if the team wouldn't rotate new people wouldn't get the learning opportunity uh and uh, what's the point of all this uh if that that wouldn't happen yeah yeah that's awesome well super duper excited to see the next slash this last one that i went to was really awesome i loved that i was able to meet other people in the tech community around my age especially when traveling that's always fun um, and I look forward to hopefully making my way back to Helsinki someday. Yeah, we'd love to have you. So make sure <laughs> to be there this year. Right. Thank you so much, Erica. Yes, thanks, Rachel. All right, everybody, that's a wrap. What a great week. Rachel, thanks for stepping in. You did great. Thanks for having me. I'm super uh, excited for Molly to be back. She is just gone for today. Don't worry. She'll be back on Monday. All right. We'll see you all. Have a great weekend. And we'll see you all on Monday. Bye.